Greetings, listeners. This is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. I'm thrilled to extend you an invitation to join us for a special limited podcast series, the September 6th, 30 Years On. In this series, we delve into the profound events and lasting impact of the September 6th, a group of intellectuals and scholars who, in 1993, faced disciplinary actions from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These events ignited vital discussions about freedom of expression, theology, and the role of dissent within the LDS community. Our first episode opens with an extraordinary recording from the Sunstone Symposium session entitled Spiritual Paths of the September 6, 30 Years Later. This live recording, which took place on July 29, 2023, brings together an array of voices. Albert Peck, Sarah M. Patterson, Margaret Toscano, Lynn Whitesides, Maxine Hanks, and Barbara Jones-Brown. Their reflections on their journeys and discussions about the enduring impact of their paths make for compelling listening. As we move ahead, our second episode guides us to a roundtable conversation called Contemporary Perspectives on the 30th Anniversary of the September 6th. In this thought-provoking dialogue, I had the honor of moderating a conversation with distinguished voices, including Jana Reese, Patrick Q. Mason, Christine Hagland, Benjamin E. Park, and Amanda Hendricks Komodo. These insightful individuals share contemporary viewpoints on the 30th anniversary of these events, shedding light on the transformative journey from then until now. Last but not least, our third and final episode shines a spotlight on author Sarah M. Patterson and her captivating new release, The September 6th and the Struggle for the Soul of Mormonism, published by Signature Books this fall. An event you won't want to miss, it's scheduled for October 5th at 7 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library's main auditorium situated at 210 East, 400 South. The views expressed in this podcast series belong solely to the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Dialogue or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please join us on this enlightening journey as each episode unveils a captivating tapestry of perspectives, narratives, and insights, all surrounding this pivotal moment in modern Mormon history. Hello, and welcome to this special live episode of Dialogue Out Loud. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us six distinguished panelists on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the September 6th. Most of our audience has some basic familiarity with this infamous moment in September 1993. Six people were excommunicated or disfellowshipped from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The events were widely covered in news media. Lynn Knabel Whitesides, Avram Gileadi, Paul Toscano, Maxine Hanks, D. Michael Quinn, and Levina Fielding Anderson were the main figures. Others were summoned to disciplinary councils around the same time, but their excommunications were delayed, including David P. Wright in 1994, Janice Merrill Allred in 1995, and Margaret Merrill Toscano in 2000. Gileadi and Hanks returned to the church over time, and Anderson's request to rejoin was denied by the First Presidency in 2019. The publications and media attention that these individuals generated played a key role in their disciplinary hearings. Some of them were founders or officers of the Mormon Alliance, an organization that gathered reports of LDS ecclesiastical and spiritual abuse. Others had written on controversial topics relating to LDS history, feminism, theology, and scripture. Many of the scholars had published in Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, over the years, including a spring 1993 article by Anderson 
The LDS Intellectual Community and Church Leadership, a Contemporary Chronology. The article cited several examples accusing church leaders of abusing their authority to silence LDS intellectuals. In the last 30 years, this story has been told many times by those directly affected. There's a fascinating new history being published on the subject by Sarah Patterson with Signature Books next month. For this roundtable, I wanted to bring together different scholars who were in formative stages in their lives and careers in the wake of the September 6th to reflect on the significance of the story today and its ongoing impacts. Their published reflections are in the fall 2023 issue of Dialogue, which arrives in mailboxes and online in September. For tonight, I ask that each of these speak for a few minutes before opening up to questions from our live audience. I'll mediate any questions submitted through the Q&A feature on Zoom. Without further ado, let me welcome Jana Reese, a senior columnist for the Religion News Service and the author of numerous books, including The Next Mormons, How Millennials Are Changing the LDS Church. Then we'll hear from Patrick Mason, the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. He's the author and editor of several books, including most recently with David Pulsifer, Proclaim Peace, The Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. After that, we'll hear from Christine Hagland, author of Eugene England, A Mormon Liberal, and editor of Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought from 2019 to 2015. Up next, Benjamin Park, Associate Professor of History at Sam Houston State University and co-editor of the Mormon Studies Review. His next book, American Zion, A New History of Mormonism, appears in January 2024. Finally, we'll hear from Amanda Hendricks Komodo, an assistant professor at Montana State University and author of Imperial Zions, Religion, Race, and Family in the American West and Pacific. Jana, why don't you kick us off? Right. Thank you for having me. And Taylor, especially, I think I probably speak for all of us in saying thank you for putting this together. I think it's a great idea. Um, even though we are gathering to commemorate a sad occasion, it's always good to see you, all of you. So briefly, I have three things that I want to say. Um, the first two of which are in my essay. So if you do read the dialogue issue with the roundtable that's coming out, this will be repetitive when you read it. The first is that September 1993 is important to me not only because of the excommunications, but also because it was when I was baptized. So I was a convert into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was in divinity school at that time. In I was entering the fall of my senior year in September of 1993, and I was a pretty regular reader of the New York Times, and I knew what was going on in this church that I had committed to join. And so this was very much on my mind. Um, I have written that there, you know, God has a sense of humor and there must be some sort of law of the conservation of feminists in the church because within one day of Levina's excommunication came my baptism. And to me, I can't separate those two things because it seemed at the time that I was joining a church and committing in faith to be part of a community that was um, excommunicating and not valuing people who looked and sounded a lot like me. 
And I would say that in the intervening 30 years, I have certainly found a beautiful community within this church, but I have also encountered many times that spirit of, of exclusion, uh, either sometimes directed toward me, but but more often, as I've observed it, directed toward others. And um, the second thing that I wanted to say is that in my essay, I wanted to look at how media changed in the intervening time between 1993, because I'm arguing that these people, the September 6th and others in the, in the early 90s, were caught up in a perfect storm of bad timing because they um, were on the receiving end of newly revised church disciplinary guidelines about apostasy and essentially making apostasy more defined and making it um, a requirement that a disciplinary council be convened. So they're a little too, um, too much on one side of the timing to take advantage of that. And then on the other side, they're too early to take advantage of the fact that by the end of the 1990s, everything explodes with the internet. And suddenly we're seeing Mormon discussions happening everywhere. And the church can no longer control the narrative in the way that it was able to do just a decade before. So I think it's worthwhile for us to ask how things might have been different if the timing had been different. I am very keenly aware that I am able as a columnist at RNS to speak out and have been very free from ecclesiastical discipline precisely because the media landscape has changed so dramatically. And then the third thing that I wanted to say is that um, since I wrote the essay, I have read Sarah Patterson's book and it's outstanding. So I want to recommend that to everyone. I think it's a pretty cogent analysis of those times. And one of the key arguments that she was making is that we have a tendency, we want to, as historians in particular, perhaps impose order upon events that are not necessarily cohesive or related even. And that what we call the September 6th was a much more broad phenomenon in this time period continuing on. And it's worth asking, I think, for people in the dialogue community, of which I am a proud part, are we enjoying that terminology of the September 6th because it makes us feel that that was one discrete moment in time, that it is over, that it is a... Um, recognizable act in history rather than something that is continuing on and is more diffuse. So thank you. Thanks, Jana. That was that was terrific as always. And it's uh, good to be with all of you. Thanks, Taylor, uh, for organizing this. And thanks to everybody for for joining in. Um, yeah, as, as Jana said, I, I think that the most important thing is, is to mark this, uh, uh, to, to commemorate this with uh, with a significant degree of, of sorrow and mourning for our sisters and brothers, um, uh, uh, not just the six in that month, uh, but, but all the others, um, uh, who, who found their, their, uh, found themselves on, on the receiving end of, of, uh, church discipline in, in ways that, uh, that have been really, 
uh, harmful to them. And um, so one of the things, uh, the main thing that I wanted to do in in my essay was to to think about uh, what happened. Dan would just refer in, in short to the September six uh, and what happened thirty years ago and how that affected the the broader academic field of of Mormon studies uh, that I'm a part of. And it's uh, you know I think it's it's interesting. So even while uh, these events were being reported in the New York Times and reported widely nationally. Uh, you know, it, it didn't register on everybody's radar. Uh, I was 18 years old. I was uh, uh, just beginning the senior year, my senior year of high school. I was living in Sandy, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake, and I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I was a, a active member of the church. I was on seminary council. I was, I'm, uh, I've reviewed my journals from that time. I was reading B.H. Roberts' History of the Church. Uh, uh, but I have absolutely no uh, uh, memory and had no concept of the time that anything was was happening. I, I lived my life blithely, um, uh, just just moving along with the the current of things. Uh, it wasn't for another five years uh, that that I heard about what happened uh, when I was in a, a Mormon history class at BYU, taught by David Whitaker. Uh, in which he put this uh, in what what had happened five years earlier within the the long history of of the church's complicated relationship with its intellectuals, uh, and and this just just shows how uh, sometimes the, the the mind of of, uh, of of people in their teens and twenties work at least mine at the time I was thinking at the time oh well that was five years ago that's ancient history like we're we're, we're i'm glad that's in the past you know i'm glad that's that's in the rearview mirror nothing to worry about here uh it's a whole new era now it's president hinckley's church right in in 1998 and uh and he's encouraging us to get all the education we can and and to move on and so so i went to graduate school just um with a kind of naivete and and, and actually really thinking that that the, those kinds of things were were in the past, um, and you know I think one of the one of the things that happened as a result of of all of that church discipline in the 1990s uh, was that it it froze out essentially uh, a, 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 almost an entire generation of of scholars. Uh, you know, leading up to that point. Uh, we really saw uh, Mormon history uh, operating at a level we'd never seen before with the rise of the new Mormon history. Just tremendous work, uh, both in terms of quantity and quality. Uh, and and not only Mormon history, but it was starting to expand into other fields as well, like theology and philosophy and and scripture studies. It was an exciting time, and and those uh, that church discipline did exactly what it was meant to do. I would argue that it put a chill. Uh, on that that in, uh, independent Mormon intellectual life. Then uh, I've spoken to many people who were in college, who were in graduate school at the time, who said they would have gone into Mormon history or, or some related field. They were interested in it, but they got the message uh, and, and they chose to study something else. Uh, and it, it would take people like me, who were just young enough, uh, uh, or, you know, naive enough uh, or uh, oblivious enough 
uh, at the time to, to 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 go to graduate school a few years later in the early 2000s and to say we 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 can do this that we hadn't been scarred uh, by by some of those conflicts from from only a few years early again just just shows how how quickly things can change and and so uh, it's not that we don't have anybody uh, uh, from from that generation but 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 many many people who would have been contributing to the intellectual life. Of of Mormonism, uh, just chose other paths uh, because they valued their church membership and 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 they uh, they, they, they they took that lesson, and so I'm I'm glad that uh, that we haven't had uh, another kind of widespread uh, and seemingly systemic uh, uh, purge of intellectuals uh, since then. But we can all talk about individual cases. We can talk about. Uh, the 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 long lasting shadow of what happened uh, in, in in the 1990s and um, and intellectuals still have to look over their shoulders uh, as uh, especially as they continue if they if they value their membership in the church so it remains a tension even these many years later. Thanks, Patrick. Um, like Jana, September 1993 was a key moment in my life. I was um, in graduate school and uh, my first published writing in, I think, anywhere, um, but certainly in any Mormon publications was an article or an essay I wrote then for Exponent 2 called Exile, uh, because I very much felt, um, even though I, I was far away from Utah and didn't yet know any of the September 6th, some of whom have now happily become Dear friends, um, I felt it personally. I felt like the church where I had been cozy and at home and thought that asking questions was just fine because it had always been fine in my family. Um, I all of a sudden felt afraid and and like um, I didn't quite fit in as comfortably as I had before. Um, the reasons for that, I think that I... Uh, bigger phenomenon can feel personal in the church have to do with um, both sociology and and doctrine. And so in, in my essay, I tried to look at a sort of the bigger swing of sociological needs of the church and then the ways that that is worked out doctrinally. Uh, I think most people are familiar with Armin Moss's um, uh, uh, paradigm of the the twin the twin problems of needing to be respectable, um, but also not too respectable, right? Needing to maintain distance from the surrounding culture, um, but not too much distance. Um, the way that the church has often managed that has been in um, conflicts with individuals rather than articulating a, an official church position or negotiating some kind of um, explicit compromise with modernity or post-modernity, as the case may be, uh, it, it becomes a personal conflict between individuals. Doctrine works this way in the church as well, right? We have no um, no real mechanism for adjudicating doctrine. Some people think that every word spoken in conference is doctrine. Some people think that it has to be signed by uh, the first presidency. People have all different um, understandings and and uh, personal interpretations of what counts as 
as doctrine. And in many ways, that is a great strength. It means that um, people can believe very different things about even such fundamental questions as the nature of God and still function comfortably within Mormonism. So, for instance, this I had a Temple Recommend interview this morning, and I suspect that if the stake presidency counselor who was interviewing me and I had spent you know, an hour instead of 10 minutes, and we had tried to define every term in those questions, it, it would not have been entirely comfortable. But because I am allowed to have my uh, private definitions of many of those things, and he is allowed to have his, and uh, we both could justify them in uh, with the resources that Mormonism has available, the theological resources, uh, we, we can function quite comfortably in the same church. Um, and the the problem is, of course, if if he or I, if either of us had felt the need to impose uh, an authoritative uh, definition on the other, we could have, you know, quickly had a conflict. And that's precisely what has happened in sort of periodic spasms um, as as the church has confronted modernity. So you could look at the nineteen fifteen. Um, or 19, I always get the dates wrong. I'm not a historian. Um, the con- the controversy over evolution at BYU, 1909, 11. Ben, help me out. Anyway, 11, 1911. Um, or at Fawn Brody, at Sonia Johnson, all of these things as, as Mormonism confronts modern issues rather than articulate an official position which people are compelled to believe or else not be members of the church these conflicts become individualized. And I think um, we can read the September 6th and the, um, you know, people who just preceded them in, or just, uh, you know, throughout the 90s, really, uh, all the way up through Eugene England, uh, being compelled to leave BYU uh, at the end of the decade, uh, all, all can be read as part of one of those periodic spasms. Like Jana, I don't think they're over. I think um, I think it's an unsolvable problem, right? The theological flexibility of Mormonism is one of its great strengths, and yet it has these costs. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I think it's a, an unsolvable problem for Mormonism, at least with uh, what we currently know and are, are willing to um, negotiate. It's uh, an impossible task to follow uh, individuals as brilliant as Christine, Jenna, and Patrick, but I'll try. Um, like Jenna, um, I w- my baptism was near the September 6 events, but unlike Jenna, it was because I was getting baptized at the age of eight uh, rather than adult convert. Uh, so unlike uh, some of the others, I didn't experience this in that type of sense, but as a historian, um, in my uh, essay that I'm going to condense and and digest a bit here, I try to do what historians do decades later who didn't have to spare the pound of flesh in the moment can do, which is try to place it in the broader context. Because while much has been written on this contentious episode, and I do appreciate that all of us are doing the much longer history than just the six individuals in September, um, what often gets overlooked is the broader cultural context in which this took place and indeed served as a launching pad 
before the crisis, because America, just like Mormonism, was engulfed in, in division and cultural wars that were birthed in the 1970s, heightened in the 1980s, and then meted out various judgments in the 1990s, uh, often over the issues of history and gender. And as often the case, Mormonism can therefore uh, act as a mirror to understand what's happening in these broader issues of society. So I'm going to try to highlight some of those broader fissures that we can uh, that can both help us understand the Mormon episode as well as how the Mormon episode can help us understand these broader fissures. Um, the tenuous uh, post World War II boom of opulence and prosperity during early 1950s America uh, quickly gave way to discord of the 1960s and 1970s. That then set the stage for the conflicts later. The civil rights movement, the Vietnam protests. Um, and uh, the culture wars of the 1970s uh, gripped the nation in this combat that was a continuation of many social conflicts over the previous two centuries. Debates over abortion, the Equal Rights Amendment, and homosexuality divided Americans into opposing factions, which gave rise to a new generation of unending social conflict. Uh, Paul Weyrich, for instance, who was the founder of the Heritage Foundation, which remains an important cultural uh, pillar in America, uh, explained this new battle as one of ideology. It's a war of ideas and it's a war about our way of life. And it has to be fought with the same intensity, I think, and dedication as you would fight a shooting war, he explained. And so therefore, the newly formed religious right quickly became a dominant movement for conservative retrenchment. And the era's chasms became so clear that historians have come to refer to this period as an age of fracture. Now, there are two driving issues that I see during this era that bear a lot of light on the September 6th episode. Uh, the first was history, because history became a battleground during this era. The bicentennial celebrations of America's independence in 1976 sparked numerous debates over the nation's identity, particularly how the past related to the present. Richard Nixon, for instance, bemoaned what he called the revisionist historians who were degrading the founding fathers and focusing on the errors of the past. Language soon then co-opted by major uh, LDS leaders in the following decade. Ezra F. Benson, for instance, gave a 1976 address to BYU that could have been written by Richard Nixon and how much cultural similarities there were in denouncing these secular historians in disrupting our fundamental beliefs. And on the other side, you have evangelicals who are keen on rejecting these secular histories um, that did not prioritize God's caressing hand. Uh, one very famous book that came out of this era was titled The Light and the Glory, published in 1977, which, dis which dismissed secular scholarship in favor of spiritual hagiography and quickly became a New York Times bestseller. And so when Boyd K. Packer, the apostle, um, instructs teachers a few years later to demonstrate that God's hand was found in, quote, every hour and every moment of the existence of the church from its beginning until now, he was actually echoing a much broader cultural trend. Now, history was one of those facets. The other one is gender, around which this new culture war is going to be fought. Most particularly, the concept that became uh, central to the Latter-day Saints during the 1970s, during this very era. And that is the traditional family. Saints had been pulled into the religious right coalition through their successful opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, 
through which they earned the credibility as reliable culture warriors. But earning a place within this newly empowered alliance required strong coordinations on two fronts. First, the church had to prove their ability to de deliver on key social issues, including the political topics crucial to the moral majority. And second, they had to shore up the theological and historical disputes that threatened this correlated message and exaggerated their ideological distance from contemporary evangelicals. That's the context in which the big battles of the 1980s between historians and gender revisionists and uh, feminist intellectuals took place. From the perspective of Salt Lake City, scholars were undercutting the narrative necessary for social assimilation and participation in these culture wars. D. Michael Quinn's 1985 article on post-manifesto polygamy, for instance, demolished a traditional tale that the church forfeited polygamy in 1890 with a clean swipe. That essay, that the essay appeared at the same time of growing convert number of conversions to the fundamentalists, as well as the uh, national scandal that was then later captured in the Under the Banner of Heaven movie and miniseries, only emphasized this threat. But the real challenge, of course, from the perspective of the institution was from the Mormon women whose feminist scholarship raised questions concerning ordination, healing blessings, and heavenly mother. Because though disputes over historical narratives had been plentiful dating back to the 1970s uh, with Arrington's Camelot era, uh, threats of actual discipline became much more earnest one scholarly uh, discourse turned its attention to gender. And the gendered and cultural context of these cultural developments shed meaning on the church's next step. Um, when Boyd K. Packer said that we need to uh, conquer the three major invasions in the church, right, the gay lesbian movement, the feminist movement, and the so-called intellectuals, it was the same language being used by political partisan, and cultural leaders throughout the nation. The issue of gender and historical scholarship, threats to the faith's now central doctrine of traditional family, were now intertwined with the blueprint borrowed from contemporary America. And these were the prominent stakes both for the culture wars and what eventually became known as September 6th and the many who were disciplined in the years following the September 6th. And I want to highlight one more thing. Uh, the scars of the September 6th, how they lived on, and they give context to one more cultural episode that I believe too often gets a distance from it, or at least not connected. Because following 1993, church leaders shifted almost immediately to their next major battleground, homosexuality. And the proclamation on the family issued in 1995 served as a bridge from the era's conflict over women's rights and revisionist scholarship on gender to the fight on against same-sex unions. It mentions the proclamation both mentions traditional gender roles as well as marriage being defined between a man and a woman. And as Taylor Petrie uh, showed in his own book, Tabernacles of Play, the proclamation was not only the product of the legal developments taking place in Hawaii, but also the capstone to these two decades of, of culture war battles over gender roles. Um, I. Maybe in the q and I'll talk more about the lingering episodes and, and what I encounter as a historian that came of age after that. But I think that context there is, is really helps in making us understand where this conflict came from and understand that it was not just a parochial battle. Thanks to everybody who has spoken before. I mean, some of them were absolutely beautiful. And like Ben, I 
I feel a little bit nervous coming after all of those. Um, also, like Ben, I Ben and I are a year apart. So if Ben was eight, I was nine, almost 10 uh, when the September 6th happened. However, unlike Ben, uh, I'm not Mormon, so I was not getting baptized, nor had I recently been baptized. Um, but what's interesting being a non-Mormon in Mormon studies is how much things that are not a part of your faith and that other faith traditions do can end up shaping your life and your career. Um, like Patrick, I noticed almost immediately when I started Mormon studies that there was a gap um, in age and in gender between a lot of the scholars. Um, there was a older cohort who had come of age before the September 6th had been excommunicated and then there was Patrick and a couple of other people around his age, very few women around that age, mostly men, which I think is important to sort of notice. And then there was a whole bunch of graduate students. Um, and many people would sort of say, not on record, but just to other people who are attending the different conferences, that after the September 6th, a lot of women and a lot of uh, especially marginalized people who would have maybe become scholars left the field or didn't even ever enter it. And one of the things that that has meant for the younger generation of scholars, particularly for women, even more so for LGBTQ people, is there's no mentors. And the lack of mentoring, the lack of discussions that would have taken place end up leaving scars on those people who came afterwards, even though they didn't experience it. Because unlike in other fields, you find yourself fighting the same battles that people that you would consider your academic grandmothers or mothers had fought. Um, those are being fought, I think, in ways in Mormon history today that isn't true of other fields. What I focus on in the essay that I wrote is I wanted to see where Mormon feminism was after the September 6th. And I wanted to understand what the difference was between Maxine Hanks or Levina Fielding Anderson and the women who wrote the Pink Dialogue um, who had a very different reception. And one of the things that I noticed as I was reading the Pink Dialogue and other essays that had been published at the time is that the women who were able to stay a part of the church kept repeating, we're not challenging the family. We're not challenging traditional marriage. And that became sort of a theme that repeated itself over and over again, that the line that could not be crossed was challenging the family, challenging traditional patriarchal ideals, um, that somehow you had to say, I'm not one of those feminists, but. And I think that is one of the legacies, not only within the LDS church, but within people who grow up in conservative areas in general, is people who feel that women need to be empowered find themselves too often saying, I'm not a feminist, but. In order to see where it had gone, I ended up reading books uh, that had been published by, uh, by, there's two bias there, that had been published by by Common Consent Press. Um, and there were some absolutely lovely ones. I love Rachel Hunt Steenbluck's Mother's Milk. Um, I've given it to friends and to family. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful piece. And when I read that book, it's because I have kids of my own, it's really emotional. And I know that not everybody sort of sees themselves in there, but it's one of the books that I can see myself in. But what was really sad as I was doing that reading those books and reading other feminists is I noticed that there was still this compulsion that even though women would write about wanting to travel, writing to be scholars, they would write about the tension that they felt knowing 
that the ultimate expectation for them was that they would be married, they would have children, and that would be enough. Um, at the same time, I read Sarah Patterson's essay in uh, DNA Mormon, uh, the collection that Ben edited on D. Michael Quinn, and she talked about queer time, the ability to reject heterosexual timelines. And it helped to give voice to what I was reading in those essays and in those books that a lot of women, I think probably both at the time and now, really wanted to create a space for themselves that wasn't defined by the family, but they didn't feel as though they could take a moment to play in what Sarah has called and is drawing from other people, has called queer time. They couldn't reject those heterosexual timelines. And so at the end, I actually felt really sad because I felt in some ways that not much had changed at all and that the proclamation on the family was still sort of controlling what people could say. Um, I was also reflecting on the fact that I had started out with a lot of female grad students and they had all disappeared. Not all of them, but many of them had. And the female grad students that I had developed relationships with early in my career, when I got a job, when I got tenure, I looked around and there were other young people, but they were mostly men. And so I found myself sort of mourning the loss of my sisters and the other female scholars. Um, I'm also feeling a little bit depressed tonight because I just saw the Barbie movie and I identify way too much with depressed Barbie. Uh, so maybe I'm just going to end there and say, you know, I I hope for the future that things will be different. But right now it seems like the patriarchy uh, is still in place. Somebody needs to say something uplifting now. I think that's up to you, Taylor, since you're next. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll see. I'll let, I'll let you all see if you find some silver linings or something uplifting here, but, uh, let me thank you all for your sort of preparatory remarks. Uh, 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 it's gotten me even more excited about getting the published versions out there and continuing the conversation publicly. Um, let me just say that I'll ask a couple of questions now to kind of kick off our discussion and I'll be keeping my eye on the Q&A feature in our Zoom conversation for anybody who wants to submit questions there for further conversation uh, and also for all of you to ask questions for all of you panelists to ask questions of one another as well. Um, let me start out with uh, a little bit of a, a uh, maybe a, a a different angle on the discussion than, than we've taken so far. I think all of us, and I'll include myself, um, sympathize and, and find ourselves sympathetic to other intellectuals who find themselves in conflict with church authority. We identify with them. We know them in many cases. Uh, uh, we see ourselves and our work uh, uh, treading some of the same ground and, uh, and, and therefore kind of, you know, connected to them. Ben, you've done a really good job of helping to situate why history and gender and sexuality issues are all kind of like intertwined in this era. And, and even though they might appear to be separate issues are actually overlapping. Um, but it's also not the case that all of the September 6 are homogenous. They disagreed with one another. They had different perspectives. Uh, uh, Gileadi is perhaps the, you know, the biggest outlier and if anybody wants to kind of talk about why he he doesn't really fit in some cases with with some of the others uh that that might be helpful to kind of unpack a little bit but i'm wondering if um if uh, you know where where you might sort of critically distance yourselves from the scholars uh of the time period either from their, their methods or whether or not yourselves sort of the broader intellectual LDS community as it exists today, 
where do where does that community kind of differ from the September sixth, uh, September sixth, or, or are there any kind of tensions that you think that uh, that develop between uh, contemporary uh, scholars and intellectuals and some of those uh, foremothers and fathers? That was a really long question. I don't know. Maybe, maybe hopefully, there's something in there. But yeah. Um, maybe I'll clear my throat and someone else can give an actual cogent answer. Um, but I, just to give an anecdote, while I was finishing or writing my my book that's coming out in January on uh, history of Mormonism in, in America, I wrote about this episode, and I, 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 and of course, the September six in this moment takes a key role. And when I, I, um, I close that section after talking about all the disciplines, and I go through all the way through uh, several, including the silencing of Laurel Ulrich at, at BYU, and then I quote Leonard Arrington. Uh, who records his diary the the what was going on and then he says but historians always have the last word um and when i send this draft to patrick um patrick as a very kind reviewer makes a, a marginal comment is like isn't this just you giving errington the last word as a historian isn't this you tilting the balance of the history right historians have the last word because we make it so we have the last word and so I find myself having a hard time writing about just recent history in general without either sympathizing or hating historical subjects. Um, but that was that was at the forefront of my mind as I was writing, because a lot of these people are, I consider heroes. A lot of people I consider more complicated figures. Um, but having to take off the hat of a you know fellow member of the community and put on the hat of the scholar, that's probably not as clear cut as I would like. Other thoughts on that one, or should I move to some of the questions in our uh, Q and A here? I can step in, but I hope uh, one of the other three will step in after me um, who haven't spoken yet. I mean, one of the things that I noticed at Sunstone this year when I went to the September 6th panel, and I was only able to go to the first one, is it was very apparent that the two people who were speaking, um, I think it was, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, it was Lynn Whiteside and Maxine Hanks on the first panel. Um, and then Barbara Jones Brown, Barbara Jones Brown, sorry, Barbara, uh, read from um, Michael Quinn's journal. But it was, it was, two things were clear. One was that they had moved on. Um, and we're no longer, and this is probably the healthiest thing. Uh, you don't want to be mired in something that helped happen to you 30 years ago, but that they no longer saw themselves as the same people as they had been back then. And it was also very clear that they had each had their own separate spiritual experiences that are very different from what, um, what I, sort of experience on a day-to-day -day basis, like feeling called was one of the ways in which it was put or receiving revelations or dreams that they had all had. And so I think one of the sort of tensions is we have a narrative about them and they no longer fit that. And we haven't really allowed them to grow beyond that narrative in any substantial way. The other thing I will say is I've discovered um, in some ways, especially with the people who they're, they're uncomfortable heroes for people who, um, who have left the church, right? Because so many of them, not so many, some of them retain like a really powerful testimony of the gospel. And so I think that makes them awkward heroes for those people who have left or for those people who um, really want to push back on some of what the church has done. Um, and 
I'm sure for those people who have stayed, I mean, that's not my life story, so I can't speak from that. But they just they don't seem to fit any particular narrative that we don't that we want to put on them because they're not completely like radical feminists who are pushing back at every moment on the patriarchy. They're receiving at some points revelations. I don't know. It just seems as though they're not completely held by the narrative that we've created, which isn't the smartest thing I've ever said. But I'm really hoping that Christine, Patrick or Jana will jump in. I actually think that is a really smart point, Amanda, that um, human beings are complex and they, they can't be reduced to the tidy narratives we we want to tell about them. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, I've I've been pausing here just just thinking about Taylor's question. Um, uh, I mean, I'm uh, undeeply in uh, debt intellectually to, to, to many of of those people. I mean, uh, I deeply admire their writings, uh, including some of the very writings that, that got them in trouble. Uh, and they've shaped my scholarship. They've shaped my discipleship. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It's, I like to tell myself that things are different now than they were in 1993. Uh, and, and I think the, um, being in an internet age, like Jana said, has forced the, the church to, to think differently about its relationship to history and historians. Uh, I think the, the great work that's happened over the past decade and a half, two decades in the church history department, I, I, I do think that by and large, the institute, institutional church has a healthier relationship to history and historians, uh, and to intellectuals than it did, um, three decades ago, but, um, I know there's a, but, and, uh, and I know a lot of people experience that, um, I have in very minor ways, but I also operate in a distinctive space based on my own belief, my own identity, uh, certain forms of privilege that I have. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, th I think it's just a really complica complicated question because, because I know people who feel um, silenced and marginalized. Um, and at the same time, I think structurally um, we're in a different place than we were three, dec three decades ago in some respects. Uh, gender, I think, is an interesting ongoing question. I guess I want to add, it's also a hard question because they're still alive and I don't want to say anything negative about people who might call me out on it. So there are points at which I disagree with specific people, but I'm not sure I want to say like, I think this person was wrong or I think differently here. So that's also what makes it hard to answer. So let me ask, uh, this sort of builds on Patrick. Oh, sorry, Christine. Did you want to hop in on that one? Uh, I was just going to say, I, I'm, different in so many ways that it almost feels silly to make the comparison but um three that are maybe salient is that uh, are that I'm not really a scholar and I hate writing um so that helps because I'm not really out there all that much um the second is that I play the piano uh which is my shorthand for I um it's easy for me to find ways to be useful in a Latter-day Saint congregation and the third is that I've never lived in Utah. Um, and that's um, a good way to at least make the um, leadership roulette a little bit less risky. 
we might come back to that uh, last point, I think, in, in one of the other questions as they're coming in here. Um, but let me ask a question that I commonly get that you all, uh, I, I'm sure commonly get, at least those of you who are, who are members of the church, um, uh, this Ali Barnes's question here, how do you handle sharing your progressive views of faith with this seemingly looming threat of excommunication? And it's, I think, especially prevalent in, in the way that Ali frames the question, the looming threat of excommunication. Is that something that you think that Latter-day Saint intellectuals and scholars experience today? And Patrick, you had mentioned that you do think that there is a gap between the the, the 90s and, and the 2020s here. Um, did they live with the looming threat of excommunication or are we, are we living naively if we don't believe that there is such a thing? Uh, how, how do you sort of experience or, or answer it, uh, when, uh, Ali or others ask you this question of, uh, this kind of constant potential threat here? I could start on that one since I dodged the previous question. Um, and also I get this question a lot because I'm fairly visible writing for religion news service, and some of my articles are a little controversial. Um, I have found over 12 years now of, 13 years of writing, um, at least weekly, that I can't be thinking about that. I just can't. Um, like Christine, I don't like writing. I don't enjoy the process, and I certainly don't need to add any more angst to that process than already exists. And so, you know, where I have come down is that either I will say something that the church will excommunicate me for, or I will not say something and be excommunicating myself because I will not be able to stay in the church unless I can be true to myself and be honest about what I believe. When I started writing in 2010 about Mormon topics, um, my faith felt so much better so much freer because I didn't have that sense anymore of sitting in the pew and or, or speaking at BYU Women's Conference, which that was trippy, um, and having that feeling of, if you really knew what I believed or what I'm thinking right now, you wouldn't want to sit next to me in church. I honestly believed that. And now I have the glorious experience of having been involved in my ward and in my stake. I have a stake calling. Um, where people know that I'm kind of heretical and they still love me. That's pretty great. Um, I'll, I'll jump in and say, I have, um, uh, I've, I've never, I've never personally felt or experienced, um, the looming threat of, of church discipline. Uh, I've had some, uh, some conversations with, with, with people along the years, but, but at no point has that been, um, uh, do I think that's, that's been on the table now, maybe that says something about me, about some of the choices I make. Uh, although I think I've over the years, I've said some things that, um, uh, that, that some more conservative members of the church and maybe leaders of the church, uh, would disagree with and take exception with. Um, I, um, but but I'm also um, I'm a uh, I'm a man who has a relatively uh, high public profile uh, as intellectuals go, and um, I don't think it does the church a lot of good to 
uh, to pick fights <laughs> with me, right? Uh, and 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 I'm not sure, you know, that, that that's tactical or strategic on any's part, anybody's part. Um, at, at, at my core, I'm 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 a believer. So so like Jana, I I know, and and like Christine said, I, I know that uh, that some of the things that I'm thinking uh, are somewhat different than some of the people in in the pew or some of the people that I, that I hear in general conference. We might defer, define things differently. Um, I. Uh, we might frame things a little bit differently, but at, but at my core, uh, I'm a believer, and that that shapes my my choices as a writer uh, as as well. Um, but I think that would have been said of of many, if if not all, of the people in 1993 as well. So there's no guarantees, uh, and certainly I, I think that looming word that there is something to that. I don't think anybody, any intellectual. Um, can operate in this space with without thinking about it, without thinking about the boundaries, without thinking about the lines. Uh, and is there a line that I'm crossing? And what will it mean? What what potential conversations might happen uh, with that? It's it's simply a reality of operating in this space. Uh, uh, I want to point out, Susan Staker raises a great point. I'm going to get to many of the other questions here that, of course, many people did leave the church and, and continue to leave the church over some of these issues and find a, a different way of relating to to the church than those who are trying to stay in or see themselves as, as belonging uh, uh, to the community. Jana, I know that you've spent a lot of time studying and, and thinking about the, the role of ex-Mormons. How do we think about the, the role of ex-Mormon and uh, ex-Mormonism and excommunicated Mormonism specifically as its own set of uh, identities and, and source of meaning and value, even rather than seeing it as simply just a, a tragedy or or, you know, are, are there ways of sort of retelling this story outside of framing it as like, ah, it's a you know, you shouldn't stay in the church all the time. I don't, what, do you, what do you think, Jenna or others? Yes, I think that's very important. The language that we use, you know, uh, Benjamin Noll and I are working on a book right now about people who have left Mormonism. And as Amanda has pointed out to me, because we're in the same writing group, um, even the premise of this is binary. Even the premise of, you know, calling people uh, those who leave or leavers or ex-Mormons or former Mormons is assuming that that's the most important part of their identity. And that is not usually how they define themselves, particularly after that that very intense crucible period where they're going through all of the renegotiations of their family life, of their devotional life. What do they believe now? Will they have a coffee maker? Everything is up for grabs in that crucial first year. And then, you know, like Amanda said about two of the women who were part of the September 6th, people move on and they define themselves in other ways. So we, we have to be very careful um, not to be reductionistic as scholars in defining people as either Latter-day Saints or not Latter-day Saints um, and being sensitive to the ways that they want to define themselves and also being sensitive that that's a moving target and that they will change over time. Really quick, I want to highlight a, an article that um, Amanda already mentioned earlier. Sarah Patterson has an article on Quinn in uh, my volume, DNA Mormon, where she talks about what it means to place Quinn in queer time rather than this LDS time, because there's this LDS narrative of Quinn, and we can expand this to many of the people involved in this episode as he's a tragic martyr figure, right? He has left 
Uh, he is his wife divorces him. Uh, he he's single. He has to live the rest of his life single uh, outside of LDS employment, outside of a job, yada yada yada. But she goes, "What if we look at it as a chance for?" His remaining decades, he got to explore his sexuality. He got to speak on uh, intellectual issues without fear of discipline. And so I think that's one example of what can happen when we shift what the priorities are in which we frame these figures. Thank you all. Uh, let, let me ask uh, Scott Abbott's question here. Uh, thanking you all, of course, for for the, the, the great insights here. Um, and I'll just put it in the just quote his question, isn't the fact that there are no BYU speakers on the panel today proof that the intimidation continues? Uh, I'll, I'll take some responsibility that I'm actually the person who put together the panel. Uh, so I, if it's if there are no BYU people, that's my fault rather than than them. But I, I wonder if you all want to kind of speak to the, the contemporary moment here. It, it, this go, goes back to some of our other questions. And, and Patrick, you've addressed this a little bit already, that Many Latter-day Saint intellectuals do feel a kind of, you know, uh, uh, somebody looking over their shoulder. Uh, how, how would you describe the sort of broader situation, maybe especially with respect to BYU? Other other thoughts and comments on that? I have just a quick thought. Um, I think that what Janice said about the media landscape having changed and the church sort of losing control of the narrative and the information that's available is true everywhere except at BYU. And I, th I think that's one place where they still can have more control and seem to exercise it. Um, yeah. I would agree with that. Um, the essay that I wrote as part of this roundtable actually closes with BYU and what's been going on there uh, since 2021-ish. And the reason that I did that, as I explained, is that in the early 1990s, what was going on at BYU with cracking down on academic freedom there uh, was kind of the canary in the coal mine. So if history is going to repeat itself, and I'm sure that every historian on this panel would say not necessarily true because the context is very, very different, but if it were to repeat itself, I think we should pay paying close attention to what's going on at BYU as a manifestation of some of the institutional um, desires of the church. I was just going to say, I think this particularly shapes what can be said in certain subfields. So um, the essay that one of the essays I published in Dialogue is on abortion. And I um, was asked by Radio West, uh, thanks to Taylor, who recommended me to talk about abortion after the um, after the Dobbs decision and the removal of Roe versus Wade. And they tried for hours, nearly a full day, to try to find a Latter-day Saint woman who was a scholar who would be willing to speak on abortion. And I know many of these women privately are pro-choice, but the problem they ran into again and again is that a lot of the women who were employed by BYU or by the church didn't want to speak publicly on abortion, not because they were afraid that they'd lose their membership, but because they were afraid they'd lose their job. And so I was really glad that you brought up uh, Scott's question, because I think that it does show that it's not just excommunication, that there are other ways to limit speech. And BYU has played a really important role in that. And of course, it's easy for me to say this because I'm non-Mormon. I've already given up that BYU would ever invite me as a speaker. I would not make it past the uh, controls. 
Um, and I was never going to be hired at BYU anyway. But I know several people who chose their topics knowing that if they went in a different direction, that BYU might not hire them. And so BYU controls the conversation before the conversation even gets started because people want to keep that employment option open. And then I know of at least three people this year um, who departments at the various BYU campuses recommended that they be hired. And then um, Salt Lake, whoever it is at Salt Lake that makes these decisions, it's all very opaque. Uh, turn them down. And so they were not employed, even though they'd sort of made it through the hiring process. And so I do think that pointing out BYU as a place where the control happens is important. And I say that loving many scholars at BYU and wishing they had m more freedom than they currently do. Um, two quick points. Uh, one, I'm glad that Scott Abbott made that comment because Scott's memoir uh, with BCC Press uh, is a wonderful reflection on these tumultuous years at BYU in the 1990s, and I strongly, strongly recommend it, um, because there was a much, many years that followed September 1993 with many BYU professors facing further recommendations. So I strongly recommend the book. Uh, second, I think that LDS Church should recognize that, A, because of the broader media context, they can't discipline or control all of the scholars who fall under their umbrellas, Christine noted. But by controlling those at BYU, not only does that become more of an imperative, but they can shape the broader field as a result because the way many complications in academia, the way it is uh, now uh, with dearth of funding, attacks on the humanities, attacks on higher education in general, well-funded private institutions like BYU play an outsized role in shaking, shaping scholarly discourse. And just by the fact that church leaders can control the discourse coming out of BYU means that they can indirectly control the broader discourse, even if it's not to the degree they would otherwise like. Let me ask uh, a kind of continuation of this question in uh, Jeff Turner's, and I'll, I'll uh, summarize, hopefully, hopefully I'm getting the, the gist of it right here. Um, but, uh, you know, there is a relationship between the church's efforts to excommunicate and discipline and to retain membership. And sometimes there's tension between those, and sometimes one is seen as in the service of the other. Um, and uh, I, I'm wondering if you uh, sort of think about how the church has kind of navigated the tension between kind of setting limits and, and through, through excommunication and discipline and retaining membership, whether that has led to a kind of uh, a broader, more open perspective towards history, as Patrick m mentioned, uh, or whether we're finding ourselves actually maybe in some uh, era of tension again. Uh, many of you have mentioned, you know, there's, you know, some things that are going on at BYU in recent years that that might uh, be uh, another canary in the coal mine here. Uh, what What is the relationship between discipline, um, uh, retention, balancing those two things, and what trends are you seeing uh, currently? I'll just say that I think multiple things can be true and be happening at the same time. Um, I'm not sure uh, that right now that there is um, one single uh, thrust or uh, trajectory uh, that, that we see within the church. Uh, I do see, uh, again, I, going back, I, I point to so much of the work being done by the church history department right now, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, and then some very troubling signs at BYU at the exact same time. Uh, and uh, and so 
uh, so, so I think we have to recognize that there's complexity, um, even, even within the church, uh, in, uh, you know, more broadly in terms of, of what might be happening, uh, at, at, at the same time. So I'll, I'll just uh, stop there. Um, this goes to Rob Lamb's question a little bit too. I think, um, I don't think these two things line up neatly. I don't think anybody is thinking, you know, if we lose some intellectuals, how are we going to, you know, what message is that going to send to? Because I think the major growth of the church is um, outside of the U.S. Um, it's it's in um, populations that just don't care very. I mean, most of most people don't care very much about the things that we care about, and. Um, so I think the church's focus is just elsewhere. And um, that all, Rob asked about sort of the the decline of doctrinal discussion in the church and curriculum. And, and I think that's part of the same problem that um, we're, we're trying to do something really different than we were trying to do in the last part of the 20th century um, with the church. And the growth is, is coming in uh, in ways that have very little to do with doctrine. And so I, I think we're going to have to figure out how that works, but it does mean that 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 equation of retention and boundary maintenance doesn't doesn't really work out um, the way that you might expect. As far as, as retention, how does excommunication of, of an individual affect the membership? Um, there's very little research on that. Ben and I have tried some and he did write an RNS post um, about that, essentially saying that it, excommunication does not seem to do the church many favors in terms of how its own members feel about the church. But I think that what what we need to acknowledge is that it achieves what Amanda has said it achieves, and, and Patrick as well, that it, it has the chilling effect. And that is the desired effect. If, if you are um, a church leader and you're very concerned with contamination of pure doctrine and you, you see an individual as a contaminant, then you want to expel the contaminant. That is a natural, very human reaction. Um, and most people, I think, who are members of the church, even within the United States, to say nothing of members abroad, have no idea what we're talking about tonight. They have not heard of the September 6th and probably have not heard of more recent excommunications of you know, ordained women or other things that might be related to that Denver snuffer. Most people do not know or care about these names. So we don't want to sort of overplay the importance of this. So uh, along those lines, let me ask Christian Anderson's question. I'll just read it. I think it's uh, uh, you know pr pretty straightforward. Maybe I'll, I'll add a few things here. But he says, I remember people mocking me in 2014 when I warned about repercussions for the ordained women leaders. The feeling among dozens of my late 20s, early 30s peers was that the church had learned its lesson from the pushback in 1993 and no leader was interested in publicly disciplining people. I think that there's no expiration date on the arbitrary use of authority as long as institutional fear, institutions fear contamination more than they celebrate difference. I wonder for you all uh, who, who witnessed obviously firsthand these events from 10 years ago and ordained women, we might add in John DeLynn's excommunication, a few others. How do we 
as historians and, and how were these experienced by intellectuals? How were those subsequent excommunications, especially those in the last decade, uh, Jana, you mentioned Denver Snuffer and others, how do they fit in with the broader narrative around the September 6th? What, what are the points of difference? Uh, uh, why or why not do you think that people have uh, associated those two events uh, between the or ordained women folks, John DeLand and others in the September 6th, or tried to distance those events from from one another? How do, how do we kind of think about those relationships? I think uh, low-hanging fruit here is that the LDS church is now more interested in cracking down as what they see direct public agitation as opposed to uh, indirect agitation via scholarship, right? I think the examples of the people who have been disciplined prominently in the last decade are not because they published a book on a topic, but because they're leading uh, a public protest or having a large uh, media corporation on it or doing these public you know, op-eds or, or whatever it is. I think they've gotten to the point to where they differentiate what they see as scholarship that may indirectly be challenging the church and direct um, uh, direct uh, protests and, and directly challenging the church. At least in my mind, that's how I think they're seeing the differences. Ben, I, I, I'm curious about this, and I want to maybe drill down a little bit more if other people uh, have, have further thoughts on it. Because in some respects, one of the defining features of many of the September 6th, and maybe not all, but was that they also saw themselves as activists. Uh, you know, and, and that their work was in furtherance of that activist project, whether that be uh, uh, reforming ecclesiastical abuse, calling it out, you know, raising it, uh, whether that be specific changes to the church around uh, uh, around gender. Uh, uh, certainly even the history was uh, had an activist bent here. Uh, where where do we see the distinctions between activism and scholarship? And where do you think the church sees those distinctions? Uh, as manifested in the way that it has uh, carried out disciplinary actions over the last 30 years. I just want to say I think that's a really important point, Taylor, um, because most feminist historians or women's historians would not separate activism and scholarship. And so I wonder, and this is a real question, I don't have an answer, if part of that separation between activism and scholarship within Mormon studies is as a result of the September 6th. Because I do think, I will say that the women, some of the women who I've met who consider themselves scholars within the church um, would not adopt that activist name or word for for themselves. But that would not be true even if I went, and Ben's been here, that's why it's on the Even if I went to like the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic, people who study Abigail, Ab- Abigail Adams, uh, if I can talk, consider themselves activists. But women who study Emmeline B. Wells would not claim that term in the same way, I think. I think one point of clarification is that, and this is just a sad reflection on the state of academia now, is that academics slash activists back in the 1980s and early 1990s had a much broader reach than we do now. I mean, you look at the numbers of those who were attending, you know, the major Sunstone events back then, or the sales counts of people who were buying um, Mormon Enigma and and other books, you know, by these activists. Most scholars today don't have that reach, which is one reason why I think a lot of scholars aren't seen as much of a threat as a threat to LDS leaders because we have uh, more of a silo now. 
I do think there's a difference. Um, uh, I, I, I think there, there's a shared identity as activists that we, that we could point to uh, in the 2010s and in the 1990s. I think I think the difference is is largely the the sense of of, of creating and leading a movement. Uh, I think uh, the the sense is that that Kate Kelly uh, had, was leading a movement that that sought and received national and even international press that uh, that uh, was seen as directly challenging church leadership um, and reputation. The same with John DeLynn and Mormon stories. Uh, uh, Denver Snuffer uh, with with his movement. Sam Young is a little bit different, but 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 uh, in terms of a movement, but uh, got press attention and in, in, in turn that, uh, that that embarrassed the church. So I mean, in each of these, I think there's also individual dynamics, right? Um, uh, there's individual leaders and and some other things at play. Uh, but I do think. Uh, that that these uh, these individuals in, in the 2010s uh, were uh, self-consciously trying to build and lead movements, not just publish articles and books that had an activist dimension and wanted to make change, uh, but but they were movement leaders in the 2010s. Let me ask a version of some of the things that are, oh, I'm sorry, Christine, did you want to hop in on that one? Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to make the sort of flip comment that uh, mostly what matters is whether you publish in journals or if people read about you in the newspaper. That you know, as a rule of thumb, that that would sort of divide it out. Well, and and to Ben's point, it, it seems at least nostalgically for me, I look back on an earlier era. It's like, wow, people used to care about what scholars said thirty years ago, and now they don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, let, but let me ask actually a, a version of this question. I think it's kind of in, in the background of some of the questions that we're getting here. Um, were the September 6th successful in changing the church? Uh, do we see a difference in the way that the church approaches gender, maybe even sexuality, certainly history? Uh, you know, is there a way of of understanding uh, this tale not as a tragic one, but actually as a successful uh, for, from a pro- from a progressive perspective, as a successful one in bringing about change? Uh, you know, so, some of the people have asked around questions around, well, can't we talk about this in ways that we didn't used to be able to? You know, we we hear about Heavenly Mother more than we used to, for instance, and so on. Uh, can can we do we see that there has been some changes? along the lines that that many of these uh individuals were were activated were activists for yes i think that's a great point there are some changes in maybe incremental small changes but still changes in the way that the church um, deals administratively with women um also i think that sam young's excommunication would be the most direct uh that's a fairly recent excommunication and Many of the things that he was advocating for are the things that the church is now including in its policies about um, not allowing, you know, young people to go into a room with a middle-aged man and close the door and have that be somehow considered required of them by God that no other adults be in the room. And, you know, generationally, that was an expectation before um it would be nice if change could occur without these terrible 
losses along the way uh, where some people are sort of, this is the hill their church membership dies upon. I'd add to that that I think Michael Quinn's much of his historical writing is simply just it's it's simply become uh, uh, part of the consensus narrative. Uh, even in, uh, for instance, his work on post-manifesto polygamy, uh, you compare that to what the church published in the Gospel Topics essay, and it and it lines up uh, uh, very well. Um, I I think some of the the Toscano's work, uh, the, the church is not there. Uh, on 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 gender, even if we've seen some some in- incremental change, Maxine Hanks's uh, work and and that important uh, book, Women and Authority. I th- I think there's there's a lot of conversation now that sounds a lot like that. Now, some people would say we're, we're right back where we were in the 1990s, where let alone 1890s, right? Um, uh, in terms of so so how much has has really changed. Um, but Maxine, in her own narrative of coming back to the church, uh, she said, I didn't change any of my ideas. I just simply changed my relationship and the way I worked with church leaders. Uh, but I wasn't asked to, 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 to disavow any of the ideas in that book when I uh, was rebaptized. So I, I think each case is, is going to be a little bit, um, little bit different. Um, I would just... I'd, I'd be hesitant to say any event was good or bad or changing things for two points. One is that Mormon history, especially on these topics, are often cyclical. So I don't know if we can see this teleological march of things getting better from this moment. There are some places where we're a lot more open on these topics and a lot of places where we're, we're not, as as Patrick highlighted. And two, um, there there there's such a chilling period that came after the 1990s to where like, we're st- just now returning to some of the conversations that we're having. They were having quite vibrantly in the 1980s. I mean, uh, in the pages of dialogue, there's a much more vibrant discussion of women or women's ordination in the early 1980s than there is now. Um, and so I, I, I'm hesitant in putting it in these narratives of like that was a necessary bad thing to happen and things have improved since then because it's a, in some cases, yes, but in other cases, no. Um, just a little anecdote. This is at the end of my roundtable essay. I I ended the first draft of this and brought it to my writing group with this very cheerful story about how, um, you know, Maxine Hanks and Mike Wynn uh, wanted that women's priesthood blessings would be recognized, that they were doing healing blessings in the 19th century. And I said they were excommunicated for that. And yet, uh, right now, you can buy the the um, painting Relief Society Healing, which depicts that. You could buy that at Deseret Book. And then one of the members of our writing group said, "It's actually uh, still not listed. It's listed on the website, but it's listed as no longer being available for sale." So, you know, a little bit of a reality check for me. We are uh, coming to the close to the end of our time, but let me ask a, a quick question here. We're not going to get to all of the the great questions that many of you asked. Um, but uh, one, uh, Jane Christie pointed out that the church no longer uses the term excommunication. Uh, it's been changed to withdrawal of membership. Why? And what effect do you think that this difference has uh, uh, going forward, maybe around some of these conversations? I say tomato, you say tomato. Like it, it strikes me as a linguistic innovation with that doesn't correspond to a starkly changed reality in the real world. 
the optimist in me would like, I think it's an excellent question. And I saw that in the chat. I'm really glad that we're talking about it. I, the optimist in me would like to believe that they are emphasizing the process of repentance and rebaptism and that the idea of a withdrawal seems less permanent than an excommunication. But it, I think Christine is right. Ultimately, it strikes me as a semantic difference. About, what, a year and a half ago, the church issued a press release about changing the name of, of uh, tithing settlement to tithing declaration. Why? It, it, I don't see that that has much of a difference either way, and this kind of feels the same way. Um, I'm just reminded of a wonderful essay by Laurel Ulrich uh, in the wake of Sonia Johnson, the ERA advocate, being excommunicated. And there was actually this big discussion of why that excommunic the excommunication proceedings were changing, kind of similar to what they are. They didn't change the names, but they were saying we're we're doing these different things. And she responded to this in this essay by basically saying. As long as this system still means that a woman is going to walk in a room filled with men who are going to make this decision, I don't care what it's called. It's the same type of practice. Let me ask one final question, and then I'll uh, open it up to make sure that everybody on the panel gets a, a final word in if they if we miss something or there's something that they want to address. But what do you all think about the ethics of excommunication itself? Uh, as I you know pointed out a couple of times, that others have pointed out that. We often sympathize with those who are like us, and I confess that sometimes I secretly uh, read articles about, you know, uh, I won't name names, but, you know, maybe cowboys taking over uh, buildings and think, why aren't those people excommunicated? Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes maybe cheer for the excommunication of uh, people. They, they never seem to get excommunicated. But uh, cheer for their excommunication. What what do you all think about uh, the the value, the virtues of of such a practice? That's utility in uh, the church, uh, in in churches in general. Uh, just just general thoughts about this. It can be an effective instrument in some cases. I wouldn't want to do away with excommunication entirely when we're speaking of people who do terrible harm in the world because of their violent actions, for example. But on the other hand, when it is the blunt instrument that is being directed at people who have expressed an idea that is contrary to what someone in leadership is teaching now, could be different from what was taught in the past or will be in the future, um, that is problematic to me. Yeah, I'd very much agree with that. I, I think it has to be a tool in the toolbox um, uh, for, for, uh, for for any ecclesiastical organization simply just because human beings sometimes do truly horrific things um and uh so it's not only boundary maintenance but it can at its best um be it be a way of of uh of uh helping uh, that person be convicted of of what they've done and and perhaps find find a way towards repentance uh but it's it seems to me that in, in almost all of these cases that we've been talking about, it's not at all clear to me what the church gained uh, from excommunication. Certainly, it suffered in the court of public opinion. Uh, some, uh, maybe many of, of these people may have eventually just kind of distanced themselves from the church uh, on their own. Uh, even if they hadn't, 
uh, did their, um, did, did changing their membership status, uh, fundamentally change, uh, the power of their ideas. Uh, and, and in some ways, uh, uh, and in some cases made heroes of them, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to others. And so it's not, again, I, I, I think it, uh, I've heard some people's, I've heard, heard some bishops say, I would never, uh, excommunicate anybody. I'd say, well, you know, and I can think of some theoretical cases, you know, uh, some truly horrific, uh, you know, child rape and some other things. Okay. Let's, let's, re- let's reserve it for some truly heinous things. Uh, but it, but in general, I'm I'm not sure that it really accomplishes as as much as the church might think it does, and maybe has some some counter effects. I guess I would like to hear a little bit more. So, I'm Methodist. Not everybody on the in the audience knows that, and we don't generally excommunicate regular members. The only technically church discipline can be brought. There was a politician, I'm trying to remember, I was actually Googling whether it was Ted Cruz or Chris Christian, I can't remember who, who a Methodist threatened to bring uh, church discipline against for their position on illegal immigration and how they've been treating immigrants. The church basically said, like, we don't actually, it's on the books, we don't do that anymore. Um, and so church discipline is generally reserved for the clergy with the idea that they have volunteered to hold themselves to a higher standard and should be removed as leaders. So I'm wondering what the benefit is? Because I don't think anyone would say that the United Methodists um, are in league with the worst of the worst of humanity, but we also don't excommunicate people often. And so I'm wondering what the usefulness of of excommunication actually is. And I think I'll add the reason why they don't say that is we vocally and try to act in ways that would suggest that Methodists aren't the worst of humanity. If anything, we're like dreadfully boring. So I, I just don't see the use of it as somebody who comes from a tradition that doesn't use that very often. Theologically, there might be a distinction made uh, to to think about the ways that the Latter-day Saint tradition thinks about priesthood, uh, especially for endowed members. Um, and uh, and so it uh, thinks about what what it means for people to, um, to to break those covenants. So there's not quite the distinction between laity. Uh, and priesthood, because uh, everybody who's been endowed has actually taken some of the same kinds of uh, vows that so, the people who are ordained in other traditions. Execu- do. So that would mean like excommunicating men with the priesthood and not women who don't have that. No, women who are, or I mean, we can have this conversation, right? But but there is generally speaking, the church holds endowed members, men and women, uh, to a different standard than people who are not endowed, um, and it does. Um, uh, at least on on paper, hold men with Melchizedek priesthood to a different standard than men who are not ordained to the priesthood. But that endowment and the the covenants, and again, the theology at least is the priesthood is being given there. Uh, what what does that mean exactly in practice? Uh, but there is a sense that endowed members uh, are held to a standard that might be similar to a, to ordained people in other traditions. Let's just say it's a messy theology. I will agree to disagree. I fully realized. I mean, we also make covenants when we are baptized or join a church, but we'll agree to disagree on that. To me, one of the great enduring mysteries is that in a church that is so very concerned with its public image and how it is portrayed in the media, um, this has been 
universally portrayed with confusion and and contempt even in the media when an excommunication has happened in the in this high profile way in the immediate aftermath of the September 6 excommunications I did my senior thesis in dip school on the September 6th and so I was following in real time how it was covered in the media that fall in particular but also into the new year and I don't think that there was a single national profile that said hey what a great idea and that kind of thing I mean certainly the church has a strong rhetoric of the world we don't want to abide by the standards of the world but also it is always tempered with this interest in how the world portrays us I mean we are basically the teenager out there thinking that everybody cares about what we're wearing all the time and so those holding those things in tension i think excommunication brings that to the fore because other people just don't understand why mormons do this and for reasons that seem fairly uh, reveal or uh, regressive um, really quick, I think one moment that embodies this tension between internal and external views of this was the 2008 The Mormons documentary series on PBS, where lots of Mormons thought the most damning parts that they were mad at PBS for airing was like the time allotment it gave to polygamy or Mountain Mouse Massacre. When in reality, all the journalists and like the non-Mormon commenters on it, the most damning part they found was a discussion of dis modern disciplinary courts. Um, and that I think that was a wake up call that like recognizing that these things aren't recognized outside the LDS context and how alien it is to many people uh, is probably one of the instigations to why it's called withdrawal of membership. And they they've done a lot of procedural changes to the, the, the uh, withdrawal of membership uh, things in recent years, too, that I think are quite interesting. I want to give uh, all of our panelists uh, a last shot here. If there's anything that we didn't get to or that we wanted to circle back to or some ideas that that were generated in our discussion, does anybody have a couple final thoughts? Just wanted to acknowledge for the people who were sharing parts of their personal stories in the q and I'm sorry that we didn't get to those comments, and I'm sorry for the pain that you've experienced with this. Um. Several people, I think, have already mentioned it, but Sarah Patterson's forthcoming book on the September 6th coming out with uh, Signature Books next month is uh, is really, really good. I've been privileged to read a few chapters in it, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for uh, that perspective to be out there. Uh, a little plug that that is our fall book club pick for the Dialogue Book Club. And if you want to join the Dialogue Book Club, you'll not only get a copy of the book, but some exclusive access for an author Q&A and other kind of stuff. So sorry, got to plug that one too. Yes. Well, I want to thank our uh, panelists. It was really such a privilege to get the uh, the all of you not only here tonight, but to contribute to this forthcoming roundtable and dialogue, offering some further deep reflections on uh, the the ongoing significance of the September 6th, its historical context, and potentially what the future looks like here for the relationship between Latter-day Saint intellectuals and church authority. We also want to thank all of our listeners, those who came tonight. Again, apologies that we didn't get to every single question. There were so many excellent discussion points here, uh, uh, but we hope that uh, this was uh, uh, an interesting conversation for you all, that you learned something. And uh, we want to thank you all for, for participating in our dialogue tonight.
Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends when it comes out on YouTube and in podcast form. Uh, don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. Uh, we hope that you'll tune in for future episodes of our podcast as well and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite platform. Uh, until next time. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to Bristlecombe Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside where we discuss faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. The central question we ask each other, as well as poets, artists, activists, and other guests around our virtual fireside is what does it mean to belong to the earth? So if you've ever wondered how to reground your faith and spiritual practice in the stuff of the earth, this is the podcast for you. Catch up on previous seasons by subscribing to Bristlecone Firesides on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. Dialogue Podcast Network.